Welcome to Transpacific Stories, a podcast about the people behind the scholarship. My name is Helen Long. My guest on this episode is Zhao Yufei, who is currently a professor in the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing at Hong Kong Baptist University. Yufei is a prolific scholar and creative writer. His most recent research has focused on the creative labor of single women in China and on the global circulation of Hong Kong pop. He is probably best known as an award-winning lyricist. He wrote his first lyric in 1989 and has since penned more than 1,000 songs for some of the most famous pop artists in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. He is also the author of many books of creative prose and has been increasingly involved in multimedia and visual art projects. Yufei talked to me about his experience growing up in the resettlement housing estates in Hong Kong during the 1960s and 70s, his lonely experience at Hong Kong University, how he went from being an evangelical Christian to penning some of the queerest lyrics in Canto Pop, how he left Hong Kong to have a long vacation in the Netherlands and stay for more than 20 years, why he had returned to teach in Hong Kong for the past 10 years, and what it means to be greedy and be at home in more than one cities. It was a lovely conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Here's the episode. So I'm very excited today to welcome a very special guest, my old friend, my good colleague, Chao Yufei. Hello, Yufei. Hi, hi, hi. Hello. I'm, I'm actually super nervous because I've never, I've never done this before. I've never done a podcast being the one uh, interviewed. But above all, I'm very happy to be here, Helen. So it's wonderful to be able to turn the mic back on you because you have been such a great broadcaster. <laughs> I've listened to some of your broadcasts when you were doing it in Amsterdam. You're raising and... people's expectations. <laughs> and I, but... can't, I can't allow myself to fail all the audience. <laughs> well, I think it's a very special episode because this is my first post-COVID episode of the pod. Um, in the podcast previously, you know, I've been going around interviewing scholars and friends all around the world. And I've been wanting to interview you for a long time. And I was waiting for the right city, you know, whether for us to end up in Hong Kong, in Amsterdam. But unfortunately, here we are. Today, we are uh, in two cities. Um, yes. I'm in Vancouver. And you, where are you? I'm now in Hong Kong, and when I look out of my uh, window, I can see blue sky with some white clouds. It's sunny. So it's almost 2 p.m. now in Hong Kong. Whereas it's almost 11 p.m. here in Vancouver. Um, yeah, I, I so much want to share Helen's time zone so that we can have a drink. <laughs> but, but I will stay sober, and then I will give you my answers as articulate as possible. <laughs> I'm glad you're in Hong Kong because it's, um, I guess, our shared hometown. And not to reveal our ages, but I think both of us grew up during the I'm 60s. I'm quite happy to disclose my age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I was born in 1961. OK, so um, I am actually getting into 60. Is it such a pity that you can't see me, right? Because if you see me, then you, you will say that, oh, Yufei doesn't look 60. And that's what I want to hear. <laughs> and that's what I, um, well, I, I, I guess we want to share our professional life as well as our personal life during this podcast. Why I, I always want to mention my age first, that's also what I'm doing when I'm teaching in Hong Kong. Basically, I just want to let my, my students people who are so much younger than me, they know there is someone like Yufai living in the city who is about to turn 60, um, but who doesn't really look like 60. I think I, think I just want to give them <laughs> uh, some sort of diversity, some sort of possibility um, that, that I hope would be inspiring. For the podcast audience, uh, we are actually also on video, so I can see you and you really don't look 60. <laughs> but but I love what you said about uh, our age actually is a marker of, yeah. you know, where we've been, where we're from. And and I mentioned it because I, I was also, I was born a few years after you, but also during the 60s. And, and so I feel like we share this 
um, time in Hong Kong, right, where I think we grew up in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it's such a different time than now, I think. And, and one of your favorite books that I've read was the memoir you wrote uh, about your mom. And for me, I love that book because there was so many details um, about Hong Kong during that time, right? Um, so I'm curious, you know, what, what, what are your most vivid memories about growing up in Hong Kong during the 60s and 70s? Well, it almost sounds cliche, but that's indeed what I remember. The, uh, how should I put it? I mean, to say that collectivity would be to make it sound too, too much more harmonious than it, 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 it was. Um, but let me continue. Then I grew up in a, what we call resettlement estate in Hong Kong. Um, public housing, but public housing of the first generation, which means that we basically, me, my mom, who is a single mother, and my uh, elder sister, we, we, we lived in a room about uh, 100 square feet. And uh, you can imagine. And then, so we live actually mostly outside of the, of the room. Mm-hmm. So our so-called kitchen, which is actually a cooking, um, cooking cabinet is was outside in the public corridor and there was a kind of water room where we went and collected water uh, and washed our clothes and and did the dishes and so on and so forth. Um, all the bathrooms and toilets were public um, so so you, you you I I lived my my childhood very much outside the private space mm-hmm. and then I grew up with a lot of children because there was a time when when children, quite a lot of them did not survive their childhood. So mm-hmm. parents tended to have quite some children. So it's a lot of things going on, a group of kids together and so on. So, so that is something that I remember uh, very strongly. And I still, I still maintain regular contact with the children I grew wow. up with at that time. Yeah. But then now, again, thanks to modern technology. So if without uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, and so on, we, we might have already lost contact. We, we, we have lost contact for some time. And now with the modern technology, then we could uh, pick it up again. But when you said the collectivity, do you think of it in a positive way? Or um, because I remember, so my mom would tell stories about uh, her time as a young person, and this would be more in the 40s. And, and she always talked about how her entire clan and relatives from especially my maternal grandmother's side they would all you know they would be coming from china and they would all stay in you know one little flat with them and and so i think my mom sometimes talked about it with frustrations like with with no privacy and 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 Mm -hmm. feeling like she never had any space but but then from what you were talking about it feels like they're also positive side i don't think um i could claim to to represent um, but in my case indeed um, I, I experience it um, generally in a positive way so people helped each other it was a tough time and my mother was a single mother but also actually there were many single mothers not particularly in the sense that they were really single but all the men uh, what they, they went out and, and worked whereas mothers would still be uh, largely um, housewives so they stay behind or quite a lot of the men they actually uh, became sailors because that was one of the professions that that seemed to you know earn quite a lot of money and um, so they would join and then they would be away for half a year or a year so if you um, remember my book I actually wrote a, a lot about women um, because about you know the whole community um, was sustained by by women um, so they needed a lot of support and the social services and everything was were not were not developed at all so mm-hmm. if my mother would go out and do something so then she would just leave me behind without worrying about uh, whether I would be safe or not because someone else, some other mothers would, would help take care of me. Mm-hmm. It is a very collective way of also um, bringing up a child too. So I think compared to what we understand as parenting, it's, it's, it's a more collective way of bringing up a child, which I find um, 
uh, very refreshing actually compared to the more narrowly defined uh, family these days. Mm-hmm. You know how that the term um, has come into being, you know, um, so like nuclear family? Yeah, because but nuclear, yes, but 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 the Chinese term has something more than nuclear about it. The yun sang has something about original, about you know, oh, which yeah. I always, which I always find problematic. Uh, the sound of which, as if the nuclear family is is the mm. given unit. Um, that is not how I experienced mm. my growing up. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you have a big, big family, uh, many alternative families around, and and we would sometimes spend our, so like for instance, we would spend a lot of time in someone else's house, be, uh, a home, because they their their room was bigger. A, a lot of collective things going on, and but again, it is easy to romanticize it. Um, so there were a lot of uh, fights going on among the children, <laughs> and like, sometimes uh, we are not playing with a certain child. So luckily enough, I was never that child, so I I never felt excluded. But it's possible that some 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 child or some children they would feel excluded by the majority of the children, precisely because there was such a strong collectivity. We all know the mechanism of collectivity. Then the inclusiveness and exclusiveness would always be there. As I understood, at a lot of the resettlement estates, um, the residents were all waiting to be upgraded. Were the resettlement estates like supposed to be temporary, and that people residents were kind of in line for? <laughs> not in for my the, case. Not, I, stayed, so, I stayed there. I stayed there until. 21 when I finished wow, my okay, university yeah. education yeah but the resettlement estate itself was a bit updated so like um, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly probably during my teenage time then we started to have our own uh, bathroom come toilet mm-hmm. so so it's, it's it's improved a little bit but the size of our room um, would remain uh, there was no kitchen Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so I stayed there until, or my family stayed there until I finished my university. I think it's good that I actually uh, foregrounded my age. So in, in that sense, it's almost like a Hong Kong story. <laughs> it it is, these... because that doesn't exist anymore. No, you know, that... so, no, no. no. So, uh, but if you go to Hong Kong, um, you can go to, they, they, they kept one block. And they turned it into a museum. Although I must add that um, I was there, it's it the, the architecture remained, but it's so so sanitized because my I remember my my resettlement housing block, uh, a lot of filth, a lot of cockroaches, um, a lot of rats. Actually, you know. So I still rem- sometimes I I must tell you that. If I feel stressed, if I feel I'm not so good, I would have nightmare, and my nightmare would be the public toilet in my mm-hmm. childhood. I would mm-hmm. end up there. So, I left um, that kind of housing when I was 21. When I started working, mm-hmm. I, my first job was with the government. You see why I'm I'm telling you that. Um, I'm Hong Kong embodied <laughs> of those periods. Um, yeah, you went into the civil service, is that right? You know, yes, and it, it's a dream job for many people. AOE. Uh, I didn't. Did I didn't. Do? I didn't apply for AO administrative officer because I was so I was too arrogant because I thought that if I if I apply for AO, I would certainly get AO. And since the AOs, you know, is such a promising prospect, and you earn a lot right away, I would never be able to get out from government service. So, I I actually don't know why I was that arrogant, but I didn't. But I applied for EO, the the second best executive officer, and I got it. Uh, I worked for a few months, and then I actually landed into onto another job. Um, which I applied also, the information officer. To work for the government would be the most uh, desirable job. I, I shouldn't say most desirable because there would be lawyers, architects, doctors. <laughs> but if you were less lucky, 
in getting into those real professions, then the most desirable would be to have a civil servant uh, job or becoming a teacher. So I became a government servant, and then very quickly that I was able to get a mortgage. <laughs> so that's why we were able. I was able to. Oh, I shouldn't say it sounds so pompous, but uh, but but yeah, because of my job uh, with the government, I was able to get a mortgage. So we were able to my family and me. We were able to get a a bigger apartment with our own bathroom. It was the first time when I was twenty one. I was able to have my own bedroom, so that's my life. But but I was also a bit interested in your university years as well because I know you went to Hong Kong University, and you did comparative literature. In in my time, it's called English studies and comparative literature. Um, I think that kind of that uh, life at Hong Kong U at that time was also a bit romanticized because of that movie, right?、Uh, City of Glass, I think it's called. With Shu Qi and Leon Lai, at least that's how <laughs> that when you know that's how I imagine it because、um, at that time Hong Kong University is quite an elite university and the English department is in this beautiful <laughs> colonial building.、Mm -hmm. um, at least that's how the movie is set. So so can you talk a bit about you know was it like that <laughs> at university? Was it no, you, not in my case? No, it、okay. is funny because.、Um, Well, you 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 mentioned Hong Kong U being an elite university. I grew up in the resettlement estates,、um, poor family, kids.、Um, so I got into Hong Kong U because of good exam results, and I just got in there. And then、um, there was a time when I started getting older. I just mentioned that I grew up.、Um, my childhood was rather pleasant, and I, I and I spent my childhood a lot with. My neighborhood kids、mm -hmm. played a lot together, and there was hardly any distinction in terms of gender.、Uh, it so happened a lot of girls, and、um, I was one of the two or three boys in that group、uh, growing up together. And then starting from secondary school, we split because we we most of them actually joined the same primary school because that's closer to our. Home, but for secondary school, we started to go to different secondary schools. So we actually the whole group dispersed, and I started to join with a new,、um, new environment, new friends. But they never became my friends. I I <laughs> I, I entered a boys' college,、mm -hmm. and I used to be quite fat, and I used to be quite sissy. Up,、oh, I'm still. Some people would still consider me sissy, or more positively put,、uh, rather gentle. And you can imagine, you know,、um, once in the boys' college, you are supposed to behave like a boy. Very good at sports, in particular, and I was not good at sports at all. I was ashamed of my body, and I was clumsy, and I couldn't run.、Um, and of course, I started to realize about my sexuality too. So I I, I realized I would never become a boy as what they would expect expect a boy、mm. to be, and then well what what can I do then? It's just basic defense mechanism. Then I I withdrew, I withdrew to myself, and I tried to hide myself.、Um, that's basically how I spent my secondary school, and then when I got into university, so that would. Remain largely the same, and so it's 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 very contrast. And I I hardly joined university life,、um, except one thing that is the、um, Christian fellowship. I became a Christian before I entered university, partly to to look for another community, to look for another family, but that's the only thing. So I I did not、um, go through university life as if in a romantic dream, not at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was I was all the time solitary. Actually, I、mm -hmm. I hid myself in the library,、um, and otherwise I would try to spread gospel. <laughs> Very、yeah. annoyingly. <laughs> <laughs> It's that's really interesting that that you mentioned the Christian fellowship side、um, because a couple of my. Parents, friends were evangelical Christians, and they were always trying to convert us. So I can think about you at that time, early '80s, actually going around trying to convert people. That's a very good、um, 
excuse for introverts like me, because mm. you know that's a kind of mission. You don't you don't particularly socialize for social socialization's sake, but you are God's children, right? So you are supposed to go out and talk people and try to bring them to the church. You have a mission, so that gives me the kind of courage to to start talking to people, and it's very often one on one. Um, so so that that's that that suits me very fine, but but that never really um, gets me anywhere. So I would join the Christian fellowship uh, regularly, but I I don't really feel that it's my home. At the same time, I try to build up some connection with uh, my classmates. But then, in the long run, they know that I I'm trying to convert them. They very quickly realize that I don't connect with them because of them. So to if I look back, um, I don't I don't really have many friends coming from my university days. Now, the first time I actually saw your name, I think, was in the late '80s. Some very um, radical songs um, uh, would come on the airwave like so i remember if we think about canto pop at that time my parents would be kind of listening to sam ho uh, roman tam right like a, a slightly older generation kind of pop and then but when i was in high school then we suddenly have these like more indie music right that suddenly it's a era of bands right there were like raiders um and uh beyond and Tatming pair, of course, and it was at that time I I feel like suddenly I felt like wow that's the kind of pop music that seems to belong to our my generation you know and and it and it's different from what my parents listen to, and I think it's at that time that your name popped up uh, among with with a few other uh, lyricists, um, so I think at that time I would not. Cross my mind that that same person who wrote those songs um, would have been the the Christians converting people at Hong Kong U. Um, so how did you? <laughs> well, it's basically the same. I'm still trying to convert people. <laughs> so so how did you start to write lyrics in the first place? Um, and... Oh, that, that actually is is um, that goes back to my Christ, Christian period um, during my oh. university time because. Um, Actually, shortly before I graduated, um, there is this organization called Breakthrough in Hong Kong. Oh yeah, that at that time, that Paul, yes. And then they, they at that time they had a collaboration with commercial radio um, for the program called That Paul Siha, Breakthrough Hours or Breakthrough Time. I don't exactly know the English name. Anyway, the the collaboration is like. A commercial radio would give airtime free. They would also give technical support, while Breakthrough would provide content by recruiting volunteers. And somehow, um, the chairman of our fellowship uh, recommended me to join them. So I must be. I should. I stay very grateful to him that that somehow he saw something in me before I saw it myself. So I never saw myself as a creative person. I never saw myself as a broadcasting person, but somehow he saw it. So he told these people that, "Oh, you can contact U Five. I think he's he's suitable for it." So they contacted me, and I did say yes. And then after after my graduation, then I started joining them as volunteer, first as a script writer. So I, as I said, I would not believe myself to. To be in front of the microphone, so I I was curious about being a scriptwriter, to be a writer, to be backstage, and then later on, indeed, uh, again they they offer me the opportunity to to um to be a host. Looking back, I I always felt first of all, indeed, um there are always people who see something in me before I see it myself, mm-hmm. and secondly, I must also give credit to myself. Despite all my sense of insecurity, I would be curious enough to say yes and and give it a try. Um, that's how I developed myself, and then so I joined Breakthrough Time, Breakthrough Hours, and I got to know Anthony Wong, Wong Yuming, who was also volunteer in that、um, Christian organization. He was Christian at that time too, so I got to know him, but we were not very close. 
because you know he's very good looking and he's 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 very knowledgeable about music where I knew nothing about music <laughs> and so and it's always surrounded by all these people I told you right I was I I, I was still very introvert so I would still sit um, apart and, and and try to be a bit with them but not exactly uh, among them but still I got to know Anthony Wong and then Later on, they started tapping pair, and then I realized that they were actually quite experimental uh, in terms of uh, collaborating with new people, new lyricists. And this was something that I keep on telling my students: that is, if you want to try something, if you sincerely want to try something in your life, then try it. Go and ask for it. Go and create. The opportunity. I wouldn't know why I managed to gather all my courage, and then I went to Anthony Wong and simply asked him, "Could you let me try and write lyrics?" So it it didn't really come out of the blue. The year was 1988. I graduated from Hong Kong U in 1983, so five years in between. Okay, so I I worked in the I I worked as volunteer for Breakthrough Time. But in the meantime,、um, I realized my Chinese was very bad. <laughs> so I told you just now that I I graduated from English Studies and Comparative Literature, Hong Kong U. So I was totally what they people call fan shu zai in those days.、Yeah. So my English would be better than、uh, my written Chinese. Of course, I conversed in in Cantonese. But if you ask me to write in Chinese, that 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 would take me hours. So I started my job in the government as an information officer. Everything must be bilingual, and I realized my Chinese writing would always be a a, a handicap. And I started feeling the need that I should improve my Chinese. So I started reading a lot of, particularly Taiwanese novels.、Mm. So after five years, <laughs> I started to think. Maybe I should find out whether my Chinese is good enough. <laughs> so,、wow. so then I, I, so that that's one、um, reason why I asked Anthony to give me, to give me that that test, and see whether my my Chinese is good enough to write a piece of Cantonese lyrics. The other was,、um, you know, as you said, just mentioned Helen, that、uh, it was a golden time for Hong、uh, Cantonese pop. So we had all these. Heavenly Kings and a lot of、um, hits in Hong Kong love songs and so on. I have nothing against love songs, but I I did feel at that time that there are so many love songs, and then th- and then quite often they carry a very very dominant set of values. Well, what we would loosely call the heteronormativity、uh-huh. now, and I was rather unsatisfied about it.、Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, if I would be able to write something, a, pop, a piece of pop lyrics, I may not, I might not be right, I might not be able to write something better, but I would surely write something different. So that's the other reason why I decided that I should ask Anthony to give me a try. So that's that's how I started, and that's how, why I'm here talking to you, Helen. And so you are completely self-taught. Because、yeah. I what, with lyric writing, <laughs> I find it so interesting because、um, if I look at your say your generation of lyric writers, we can count in maybe two hands, but not too much more than that, right? Like there's, it seems there seems to be just a limited group of people writing, and I've often often heard people say,、mm-hmm. well, that's because it's very difficult, like writing Cantonese lyric is actually、yeah. very technical and not. It, it, you know, not just anybody can do it, and and so there are really only maybe a two handful of people who are able to 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 write those hits. So, so how did like how do you acquire <laughs> something so so technical? I have no idea, to be honest.、Um, and this is also something you know. I I after I joined、uh, Hong Kong Baptist University in two thousand eleven, then they asked me to to start、um, you know. Why don't you try a lyric writing course? And then I thought, okay,、uh, maybe I could try to share some experience. I wouldn't claim to be able to teach 
in the sense that you know after this course you are able to write. I wouldn't I wouldn't claim that at all, but I I could ex uh, I could share my experience. Um, so this is something that I would tell my students right away. That is, I don't know music. I don't play any musical instruments. I don't even read notes. Second, I am not a graduate in Chinese. So, so I hope that's reassuring. You know that even if you have no music background. Even if you are not a Chinese um, undergrad, maybe you are still able to write lyrics. Um, I I have no idea why I was able to do it. I, if I remember correctly, then in nineteen eighty eight, nineteen eighty nine, that I started writing um, for Tetming, it did come about rather effortlessly. So I, I didn't feel that. I was struggling, mm -hmm. so I guess I I would never be sure, but probably it's because I listened a lot to um to Cantonese opera. My mother took me to quite some uh, Cantonese opera, and of course Canto pop. Um, mm -hmm. So that that would give me some kind of um, listening uh, mm -hmm. ability, and I think that is much more than uh, that is very important for you to have those pair of ears. Mm -hmm. Then you can hear the um, the music, mm -hmm. and then you can you can find the right words with the right tones for the notes. Mm -hmm. That's something I I I I could trace, but I'm never sure. Yeah, I think maybe it's not unlike people who have musicality. I mean, I think you have that musicality. Is is just in the in the in the lyric, right? Um, it's, yeah, because what you just told me sounds very much like what a musician tells me that, yeah, no, I just, you know, I just listen and I'm able to play it. That's how, what musicians usually say, right? So, so I, I actually, so I was acquainted with your name <laughs> during the 80s when I was just, you know, a high school student trying to be cool, listening to cool music. And I, your name popped up again years later when i think when i was living abroad and then you know in the diasporic community we were like wanting to listen to to cool cantopop pop music and i think it was something you wrote for maybe candy low or somebody like that like another generation younger generation of singer and then one of my friends said oh do you know this tell you i i think he he lives somewhere in denmark or something um <laughs> and then they were they were then you, there's a kind of mystique about you because they you, you know you were someone who left hong kong but you know yeah. um they seem to say you live some glamorous life somewhere in europe <laughs> um and and that was my knowledge of you just some hazy knowledge of this lyricist who's like somewhere in the diaspora living very bohemian life right um but so how how did you when did you leave Hong Kong and what, you know, when, when did you become this somewhat mysterious lyricist who's somewhere, somewhere else in the world? I love that mystique. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for, for uh, someone growing up in the resettlement uh, estate and then later on with that kind of aura, mystique and uh, living somewhere in Europe. <laughs> Uh, it's, it sounds almost like a fairy tale. Okay, uh, in 1989, I quit my job uh, from the government. And and then I started freelancing for uh, for newspaper. My last job in Hong Kong was with Ming Pao as a managing editor. And I was also starting uh, other part-time job with, the, with radio as well, as well as writing lyrics. So I was pretty busy. And then... Um, but somehow I felt that it wasn't exactly the life I wanted. Mm. I loved the jobs, but I didn't really enjoy the life I was leading. So, but then the trigger was relationship. So, well, that's the mystique, you know, combined with <laughs> romance. <laughs> always a man. <laughs> I always, I always love, you know, to, to give a romanticized version of the story. Mm -hmm. Namely, so I fell in love with a Dutch guy and then uh, we started our relationship in Hong Kong, actually. And it was late 80s um, and, you know, early 90s. My generation, um, we all thought of leaving or staying. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, I, I couldn't help also thinking about leaving Hong Kong. And also, as I told you, I wasn't particularly happy about having three jobs. Um, plus the fact that I indeed grew up, you know, in a very poor environment. I always wanted or I always fantasized living abroad, particularly in Europe. And now this, this Dutch person, and so we started talking about should we stay in Hong Kong or should we move to the Netherlands? So it's not Denmark, okay, it's the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think but, it was it even add to your mystique that people confuse where you were. Yeah, yeah. so, um, well, but, but it's not so far from, right, you know, a small country uh, in northern part of Europe. Anyway, so then we decided to go to the Netherlands. For me, it wasn't migration. It was almost like taking a long holiday and see mm-hmm. how things um, go. So I, it was, um, you know, the immigration policy at that point was much more relaxed than now, sadly to say. Um, so I just I just bought a ticket and then with one suitcase, wow. I wrote a song late, uh, much later for Karen Mark. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, with only one suitcase. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's pretty much summarized my my migration. So I just left actually, wow. and then I ended up in a small town uh, in the in Maastricht, right? Is that right? No, Were no, you in... uh, before Maastricht, it was in Schagen. Um, in the Netherlands. Um, it's really, you know, uh, my house at that point, um, the, the backyard uh, would be overlooking a large piece of grass and then um, far away you could see cows and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very different from urban Hong Kong where I was growing up. So that's how I ended up in the Netherlands. I But very luckily, I... I, I um, was able to find a job there. I was I was enjoying my life. Uh, it was as I said, it was a long vacation. So my my life would only be um, learning Dutch, because I felt I should learn the language. So learning Dutch and trying to um, to find my way there, to take a break, still planning for what um, what should I do in the longer run. Uh, plus writing some columns so that I could still earn some money. Uh, for my for my family in Hong Kong, that's the main financial burden I I had at that point. So, and then I was looking for BBC World Service. I turned the radio. You know, it was the, in in those days where you have to turn the, <laughs> the dial manual. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and then I I started listen. I start I started listening to some Cantonese. So and then I I stay on and listening and then and then I wonder, hey so much about um, the Netherlands. How could it be BBC World Service? Mm-hmm. I started to ask people around and then they told me that the Dutch government also sponsors some uh, what they call mother tongue broadcast. Mm-hmm. So basically for ethnic minorities to, to, to broadcast in their own languages. Um, so Chinese would be one of them. So I just sent um, an open uh, application letter to them. So I started working there and then again i like my my life there and i decided to stay on and and, and on and on so oh. i spent 20 years altogether <laughs> the, but the starting point was just leaving with that one suitcase yes how i so-called plan my life i that is not planning too much ahead mm-hmm. so i i just mentioned that in 2011 i went back to hong kong well the back is in quotation marks because Again, um, somewhere along the line, I started to feel that, um, you know, the job I applied to would be radio, right? And then I was also writing lyrics. So it's all been about output and output and output. And I was thinking I should, I should start to receive things, receive knowledge. So I started doing a master's program in the University of Amsterdam. And then, um, and then later on, Again, it's, it's another instance of people seeing something in me before I see it myself. Mm-hmm. So my, my master's supervisor, Professor Lisbeth Van Zona, uh, gender studies and so on. So she said, you uh, would you consider actually taking a PhD project? 
I have never, never thought that I could become an academic. I always thought that I was very good at an exam and achieving good results at an exam, but that doesn't make you a good academic, right? Ever since she asked me that question that opened up my eyes, then I started, maybe, maybe she's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I, I could. So, so in the end, I did say yes to that. Um, so then I finished my PhD, which was on the uh, second, third generation Chinese uh, young people in the Netherlands and their connection with um, transnational popular culture, primarily popular culture from Hong Kong. Then by the end of my PhD, I started to wonder what should be my next step. I wanted to do something quite different. Actually, looking back, it might be my way of dealing with my midlife crisis. So, <laughs> I never experienced that because there have been many twists and turns. I think to have a midlife crisis, you have to be to have a certain degree of stability in your life, so that you feel the sense of crisis. But in my case, I start over again quite often. So I start to feel that maybe I I want to stay working in a university setting which would mean that I should start teaching university students. And very, very quickly, I would feel that if I teach, I want to teach younger generation in Hong Kong. And so I started applying for a job in uh, Hong Kong, uh, the Baptist University Humanities Program. And then they took me in. The first contract was 20 months. So, so that's the, the time frame. So I thought after 20 months, I would, I would, I would leave. I would come back to Amsterdam because I, I, I have, in, in the meantime, I started a new relationship and, and it's not ideal to, to have a long distance relationship. So, but at the same time, I had, I, I had the first strong urge that I would like to, to work again in Hong Kong, to have connection again with the city, uh, particularly with the younger generation of the city. So my partner supported me. He's also an academic. And so then we decided, okay, 20 months would be okay, good enough um, for me to re-anchor myself. Actually, a lot of my academic friends, they thought I would be unable to, to bear the education system in Hong <laughs> Kong. I would not be able to tolerate the younger generation in Hong Kong. They thought I would leave much earlier than 20 uh. months. But I stayed. And then when they offered me a new term of contract, I just, I just couldn't say no. It would have felt like betraying my students. So I decided to stay and even now I'm still based in Hong Kong. Yeah, so 20 months turned into 10 years. Oh God, don't mention it, Helen. <laughs> you, uh, and, uh, you have another book called uh, Suddenly 10 Years Have Passed. Yeah, exactly, exactly and how I feel now. Because you said 2011, right? 2011, you were thinking about 20 months and now it's already yeah. 2021. So I just got my uh, long service award, you know, after 10 years. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> but but well, so now, <laughs> where is home for you? Is Hong Kong home or is Amsterdam home? Well, or... you know, Helen, uh, you know it as well as I. It's an impossible question. So I, I feel at home in both cities. I feel connected in both cities. Um, when I'm in Hong Kong, I miss Amsterdam dearly. When I'm in Amsterdam, I miss Hong Kong. So to tell you my routine every day. Okay, so I get up in the morning and then I will start reading Dutch newspaper. And then I would start reading Chinese news or, or news in the Chinese language. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't want to, to call it split because that would mean a certain sense of fragmentation. That's not mm -hmm. how I feel myself. Actually, I feel myself combining everything and uh, more than one place, more than one home. I feel attached to both places. Mm -hmm. if, you, if I must tell the difference, then it's... In Amsterdam or in the Netherlands, by and large, I feel like <laughs> a consumer. So I consume mm. the good life offered mm. to me by the system, by the society, by my good friends, by good wine, by good cityscape. Uh, but I consume, I enjoy, you know, I derive pleasure out of that. Nothing wrong about it, but I'm, I'm essentially a consumer. In Hong Kong, I feel 
more strongly as a citizen. And I feel that I, I have my duty here. I can contribute. Um, I can master resources and then try to work something out uh, to make the city better. So, you know, th that's the difference. This is a different way how I relate to both localities. You've also kept up, you know, you're an academic, you're publishing academically, you're teaching in the university, but you've also kept up with your lyric writing. I guess you're not doing broadcasting regularly, no. but you're being interviewed. And... <laughs> Sometimes I do miss that, uh, particularly miss phone in program. And a uh, high, you know, you, you get adrenaline um, and that kind of push. So who is going to talk to me? And then what, what would this person be saying? I miss that. Well, I think you should do a podcast. <laughs> it's not the same. You know, the phone in program is that your people ca uh, call in life and, and that kind of life uh, mm, liveliness. liveness. Uh -huh. Yeah. Is that, well, you is you can do streaming then. Yeah, that is yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, no, so I was saying that not not only do you hold two cities as home, you're also continuing to yeah. hold, you know, different professional roles. Um, really, you know, hey, Helen, you know, we have developed this at one point, right? 4G, I was helping <laughs> Helen go through a very difficult part of her life. <laughs> and then somehow... Indeed. I I have you know I'm a lyricist I'm something with I'm someone. Uh, Wait, what are the four Gs again? Um... Now it's becoming five. So at that time I was telling Helen that one sh one must always be generous, graceful, grateful, uh, gentle, and later on I added greedy. <laughs> greedy. So <laughs> you're you're so the I'm, only I'm, person who put a positive spin on on greed, right? Like greedy even before, to do yeah, work. Yeah. Even before uh, Steve Jobs, right? And then um, so he was saying, "Be hungry and stay hungry and be greedy," right? So I I always feel that um, well now that we are talking about my life, I always felt that I I had I had a very good childhood, but I I had quite a miserable puberty. I mean, it's not even puberty to me. I try to be a nobody, okay, really nobody. <laughs> um, so I thought for a long, long time that I was not young at all. So probably for the rest of my life, I try to stay young. And um, so physically as well as mentally, if you like. So, so I think being greedy is part and parcel of that youthfulness. So you want as much as possible you want as much as possible out of your life so one city is not enough of course i want the world you know and one job is how can one job be enough i want more and how could one audience be enough i want more than my my students i want the whole world basically <laughs> so yes i'm i'm greedy and i want to try new things um so even in terms of creative uh projects then now I want to branch out more to, uh, for instance, visual arts mm -hmm. uh, performances. So not only writing, of course, I, I, I keep on writing, but I want to collaborate more. Well, I noticed you did a residency recently at the Asian Art Archive, right? And, right. and uh, yeah, and then obviously in your class, you've also, um, e even now on the video, I can see on your wall, um, there are artwork by your students. So I know in your even in your lyric teaching class, you would involve students who would do visual arts and, and performance arts to collaborate with your lyrics. So so um, is that is that where you, that's the direction you're going now um, to just collaborate with with, you know, people work in different fields and, and different uh, creative disciplines. My looking back of my creative life, for instance, is that I was a, I, I was and I'm still a, a writer, a lyric writer for that matter. And for that, I usually work on my own. I just sit in my, in my home and, and write. I don't need to collaborate with anyone. <laughs> it's a very solitary business, which I like, uh, which I enjoy. But then the, the curious part of me, the greedy part of Yufi would speak to me and say that, why don't you try? Uh, collaborating with other people, collaborating with other people from other disciplines and see how it goes. So so I, I can see myself collaborating more and more with people. And I and enjoy that. Of course, 
there would be challenges, and sometimes it didn't. It doesn't really go that smoothly. You know, people are awful animals. So, <laughs> <laughs> but they are also wonderful at times. So by and large, I still enjoy this uh, this process of connecting with people, to finding out their stories, and we can try to combine our stories together, and then and then try to create things together. So. That's how I look at my creative life from primarily a, a, a very solitary act into both uh, working solitarily, but also in, a, in, a, in, in partnership or in team uh, connections. Well, I look forward to seeing all of those projects flourish. I think I feel like it's come such a long way from being a teenager, enjoying your radical lyric, um, <laughs> to to now being your colleague and your friend, and then also seeing you know you yeah. just you know continue to break new grounds and and do new don't things. Do you think it is wonderful? I think I think um, that's I think again there there are reasons why I eventually become a teacher. I think. As a as a writer, as a creative person, um, share something uh, common with being a teacher. That is, mm-hmm. what you what you have done years ago, somehow they left some traces mm-hmm. with your students or with uh, your fan or, or with your audience. Mm-hmm. And then years later, you know, you may come across them again, and then they will tell you that oh, I. I was your student. I was listening to your class at that time, and so on. Or I've listened to your work, and so on. So, so even after all these years, I still feel that um, well, thirty years as a as a creative writer, ten years as a, as a teacher, I I'm still treasuring that kind of encounter, um, you know, enhanced with time and space. That is that is something very very precious. That's that's a beautiful way of putting it. On that note, I want to thank you so much for so thank generously you, talking yeah, to me and sharing your stories. Um, I really look forward to seeing and hearing all of your new projects. That's gonna yeah. Come. We should see each other and give each other a hug, a real hug. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Hella. Yeah, thank you so much, Yofei.